out of love and affection for that gospel, remain standing, please, and turn with me to Ruth, chapter 4. It is the eighth book in the Bible, Ruth, chapter 4. You'll find it on page 189 or 212, since we have two different pew Bibles under the seat uh, in front of you. Last week, we finished up chapter 3. We concentrated actually the last couple of weeks looking at the providence of God. A fancy word, providence, just simply meaning that, that God watches over all things. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, he never is up in heaven saying, whoops, what am I going to do now? But he is effectively working in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives every moment of every day. If we acquiesce to his providence... Don't we oftentimes, when we say, all right, it's all about providence, don't we oftentimes sit down then and immediately turn to this response? Well, nothing good is going to come out of this. I tried to fix it for him. He won't let me fix it for him. So now I guess I will wait on him, but nothing good is going to come out of this. He's not going to do good to me this time. He hadn't done good to me last time. He never does good to me. Oh, I know that describes you, friends, because it describes me as well. But there is good news for us at the end of this wonderful little book, because that is the very theme that, that uh, we find in Ruth chapter 4. So let's give our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except, uh, except you, and then I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, Well, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem. I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, the redemp for, uh, for the redemption and the transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all of the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Mahlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all of those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. 
May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Elimadab, Elimadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you speak to us through the divine inspiration of your holy, infallible, and inerrant word and the power of your Holy Spirit who reigns and dwells within us. Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things of how good our God is to us every moment of every day, that we might behold it and then our life might be a witness to the fact of the goodness of our God to us. Do that, please, today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, friends, be seated. Last week when we focused on providence in chapter 3, I began with an opening illustration to the sermon telling you the events that took me to Austin Seminary down in Austin, Texas and how I had maneuvered the providence of God because he was not working fast enough in my life and he wasn't doing it the way that I wanted it done. So I figured I had to step in and fix it for him to show him that I really needed to be down there and then the whole events of how... Uh, a, a, a terrible decision that was that I had taken my wife kicking and screaming and that all, all of the things that had turned out negative and all of the, the lack of, uh, of teaching the faith, the, 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 the true faith, the one true faith that's found in the Bible and me defending my faith more than, than growing in my faith and how the events of that particular decision that I had done on my own, God then God still was in charge, he was still providential overall, and he was still working out his plan. You remember that? I hope you do. It was just last week. I hope you do. Well, let me move now then to the end of the story, because I eventually did go to seminary again. I went to Covenant Theological Seminary, whoop, whoop, the seminary of the Presbyterian Church in America. And after a couple of years of being back uh, at, uh, in Louisville, after... I got my job back at the fire station 
Uh, we were back in Louisville. Jennifer said, see, we're done with all of that stuff. We found the PCA. We began to grow in our faith. Uh, the, uh, the, the pastor of our home church discipled me, mentored me. We were studying the Westminster Confession of Faith together. I'd never even heard of it in the, in the other uh, denomination that I left. I'm not going to say it. Uh, but in this denomination, how we, I was growing. Jennifer was growing. So I started having that, that, that hound of heaven just wouldn't let me go. And so I'm starting to think about ministry from a different perspective this time. Not from you know the stage like I did uh, in the other denomination, but now a true call of God to, to go into ministry and proclaim the gospel. And so I uh, rode off to Covenant Seminary and one day uh, Jen opens the mailbox and there's this big white envelope and it says Covenant Theological Seminary in the corner and she comes walking in saying, what is this? <laughs> and that started this wonderful conversation then that led her eventually to say, it's time. If, if you had your degree right now, would you be a pastor or would you be a fireman? And I said, I would be a pastor. And she said, then let's sell this house and let's go. We went to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And I had romanticized this whole event. I thought this is going to be wonderful. I made reservations at a bed and breakfast in a, in a home that was built in the late 1800s in downtown. I had it all planned out. It was going to be a great weekend. Melissa, my oldest, was about five years old. We got into St. Louis finally, driving in our minivan, came over this hill and started coming down. It was misting rain, and there was a car stopped right in the middle of the street. I hit my brakes. I started sliding. I smashed into a curb that was about this big on the right-hand side, broke my tie rod in out from under the front of my car, and I flattened the tire. So here I am stuck in St. Louis. It's Memorial Day weekend. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do now? So they tow the car, they tow it away to the Mazda dealership, which, by the way, is going to be closed on Monday, and I'm supposed to be back at the fire station on Monday, and I didn't know what I was going to do. Got a rent car, and I said, it's going to be okay. We're going to, let's, go to, let's go to the bed and breakfast and check in. We drive up. Literally, the front yard was about, the grass was about as tall as this pulpit. It's about three feet. It looked like it hadn't had a coat of paint in, since 1884 or something like that. We walk in, and there's this avocado green shag carpet and three or four cats running around. Now, if you're a cat person, God love you. I'm not a cat person. Uh, and we wanted the, the third floor suite, which had a little separate room that Melissa could sleep in. And so we made our way up to the third floor suite. We opened the door, and there's this big old fat cat laying right in the middle of the bed. We shoo the cat out. We go to hang our stuff up. The owner of the house, this is their living quarters. They have rented out their bedroom to Jennifer and me. There's no place to hang our clothes. It's their room. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is really not going well. So we said, let's just go to the seminary and let's look around, but let's, 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 let's go for a nice, a nice dinner. So we go to this place, I didn't have any idea where we were going, to a place for dinner and we sit down and we look at the menu and I'm a fireman, I'm making $32,000 a year. Wow, we'll get Melissa a hamburger and we'll each have a side salad and a glass of water. So we ordered that from the waiter and of course they're like, <laughs> deadbeats, boom, you'll close the pad. We want a hamburger, cheese, uh, this way, this way, this way, okay. 
you know, we're just, by this time, it was like, we had been to the seminary, we're looking around going, yeah, 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 okay, okay, you want to see the library? Nah, I don't need to see the library. <laughs> we opened, the, the, they served the, the meal, they put this thing right in front of Melissa, and Jennifer takes the bun off, and there's this big old hair laying right across the cheese. We went back to the bed and breakfast. I'm getting to the point, I promise. We, we go back to the bed and breakfast. It's nighttime. Jennifer's jumping, you know, from a towel to a towel. She doesn't want to step on the floor because the carpet is so nasty. And we lie down in bed, trying to go to sleep. And right over us, you can hear the rats in the attic. Just yeah. You know where I'm going, right? I, I finally got my car back. Uh, a day later, I had to call the chief and say, I, I, I've had a, a, a little bit of a run-in. I'm not going to be able to make it in. He didn't know I was about to quit again. So I didn't want to tell him I was in St. Louis looking at a seminary. We got in the van. We dusted, the, the, we dusted our shoes, our sandals, and we said, I said, I will never go back to St. Louis ever again. In God's good providence... He reversed this whole thing. Two years later, Jennifer and I were driving our U-Haul truck to Covenant Theological Seminary, and we were unloading our truck, and we had befriended people in seminary for the three years that we were there that are still lifelong friends of ours today. Our, our daughters speak uh, about the, the great times in their life looking back that the times that they lived in that 800 square foot apartment at Covenant Theological Seminary. And even the last two weekends ago when Melissa got married right here, the gentleman standing next to me, the only other Bryant I ever met in my life, a friend from seminary, we still have that connection. And that's where I want to go. Many times, friends, in life, it looks like the events of our life are just devastating. This is never going to work out. This is, this, is, this is bad. This is really bad. But isn't it always the case that God does good to us? Isn't it always the case that he works out his good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? God's plan is not simply from A to Z in a straight line. Sometimes God's plan allows a curvature from here to there, but it does not dictate the fact that he is still providentially in control of all things and delights in doing good to his people. He reverses the events that we think are devastating that could never be fixed. It will never work out for our good. I'll never be happy again. And God will turn that around. He'll reverse that. He'll renew us, show us that he's never left us or, uh, or forsaken us. And he will sustain us through life and pour out his goodness on us. I experienced that firsthand in my call to ministry. I believe that's what Ruth 4 says. This picture of reversal. I want to tell you this, that I gleaned a wonderful benefit from uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson in his study on, on this chapter this week. He, he gives this picture of how chapter 4 takes chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and reverses everything to show us this beautiful picture of how, of how God lavishes his goodness and mercy and grace upon us. It leads us to the very fact where uh, what we read in verse 14, where the women respond, praise be to the Lord, because this day he has not left you without a kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer who will renew your life, who will sustain you, who will turn every single thing around such that your response then today ought to be, today you are witnesses to that fact. 
You are witnesses to the fact in the very life that you live that your God is good to you. Even though it looks dark, it looks different, it looks difficult, even though you stick your hands in there and you try to fix it for him and then you acquiesce, okay, I, mess, I, must, uh, I guess I must let you fix it, but you're not going to do anything good. Our life ought to witness to the very fact that we have never been left without a kinsman redeemer who promises to reverse things, to renew us, and to sustain us. Look at how many times the, the phrase kinsman redeemer is used in the book. It starts for us in chapter 2, verse 21. When Naomi, remember, sees Ruth coming with all of that stuff, and she says, here she comes, just walking down the street. Yeah, and she says, that man is our kinsman redeemer. That man who has blessed you is our kinsman redeemer. And that's like the foreshadow of what we read in the rest of the book. We read it in, in chapter 3, verse 2. Is not Boaz uh, the kinsman redeemer of ours? Again in verse 9. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. And again in verse 12, although it is true that I am a kin of yours, there is another kinsman redeemer that is even closer. Chapter 4, verse 1, when the kinsman redeemer that he mentioned came along. And then again in verse 3, then he said to the kinsman redeemer, verse 6, at this the kinsman redeemer said, verse 8, so the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, and all coming to the climax of the very point of our text today in chapter 4. Praise be to the Lord. Verse 14, chapter 4. He has not left you without what? A kinsman redeemer. One who promises to renew you and to sustain you. So look at this very briefly. How, how the author, whoever that is of the book, turns everything, reverses everything to give us the picture. What starts in chapter 1 with an emphasis on Naomi, then moving to Ruth, then moving to Boaz, in that order as the characters are introduced to us, chapter 1, the picture of Naomi, then it moves to Ruth, then it moves to Boaz. Now in chapter 4, it's completely reversed. The author starts with Boaz, then moves to Ruth, and then ends with Naomi. There's the first reversal that we find. Boaz, up to this point... Chapters 1, 2, and 3 has been a minor character, hasn't he? We haven't heard much about him at all. But now in chapter 4, he dominates three-fourths of the chapter. Verses 1 through 12 deal with Boaz, concentrating on Boaz. So what once starts as a minor thing, now we find that he is the center of the stage and the spotlight is on him. We can, we can almost hear the people saying to him at the end of chapter 3, Boaz, dude, dude. Women aren't allowed on the threshing floor, but here she is. It's dark. Nobody's here. Don't go looking for another kinsman redeemer. You've got your opportunity right here. Just take advantage of that. Don't go, don't go trying to find a kin that's close. He'll never know, so don't go after him. Just, just go ahead and take advantage. And then they get to the top of verse four, or chapter 4, right? And he's, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be obedient to God. I'm going to be obedient to, to God. And so he goes and he sits down at the, at the gate. And then the kinsman redeemer comes, right? And he says, hey, there's a Naomi and Ruth. And they're going to sell some property. And uh, you're the closest. Do you want it? And he says, I will redeem. And you can, you can hear the people in Boaz's ear. I told you so, you idiot. I told you so. 
I, now you've gone and messed everything up. I told you if you'd have just taken advantage of it, things would be fine. And now here he is ready to redeem. You, saw, you heard the story. He doesn't redeem because he's more interested in his own affairs. Another mother-in-law, another wife, <laughs> count me out. <laughs> I'm only going to take, uh, I'm going to keep my estate intact. But look at the detailed account that chapter 4 gives to us. Meanwhile, because we expect chapter 4 to open up with a wedding, right? Chapter 3, Boaz looks at Ruth and says, you shouldn't be here. So slip out in the dark of night so that nobody sees you. Tell nobody that you've been on the, the threshing floor. I'm going to go find the kinsman redeemer. I'll get this done. So we expect at the beginning of chapter 4 to read that there's a wedding. But we don't. Because God's plan is not always from A to Z in a straight line. Sometimes it moves this way and that way. And so the people are left saying, see, you made a, you made a mistake. But Boaz says, look at the detail. He gets the exact number of elders that he needs. He sits in the exact spot that he needs. And it just so happens that to the kinsman redeemer, the closer kinsman redeemer, comes by. He lays out all of these details. Why? Because he is revealing to us, the author is revealing to us, that Boaz has been renewed in the blessings that God is lavishing upon him because of his obedience to the very things of God. Exactly what Pastor Belanger said in the law passage today. God promises to do these things to his people when they are obedient. And Boaz continued to be faithful and obedient to the things of God instead of trying it his way. And even though it was dark, and even though it didn't always work out the way he might wanted it to work out, it eventually did. God reversed everything, renewed the blessings that he lavished on him and bestowed. Friends, listen, if you're here today and you doubt that the Lord is going to be good to you, if your life is filled with doubt because you think it's just all a mess now. He doesn't love me. He's not going to do good for me. I, I would ask you if that defines you to take a very close look at your life because when I do, I realize that when I am experiencing that doubt, it's because I am trying to maneuver my way. I'm not giving in to the providence of God, but I'm trying to fix it for him and allow him to do it. And then I get all frustrated that it's not happening and then I doubt that he's going to do good. But it's not because of the lack of his promise. It's because of my lack of disobedience. Our law passage today, you are my friends, if what? If you do what I command. Boaz did what God commanded of him, and he renewed these blessings. He won favor. He got Ruth. He got Naomi. He got the property. He got everything. Everything that he was obedient to wait for, God providentially gave to him. The second character then, after this long, detailed account that we have of God renewing the blessings to Boaz and giving him all of these things that he had wanted, now we find only one verse, verse 13, that is focused on Ruth. Only one verse, and that verse is 13. Stay here for the night. Nope, that's not, that's the last chapter. Uh, the next page. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, uh, he went to her, and she bore him a son. Think about God's goodness now to Ruth. 
Think about what she, we read in chapter 1. Back before we re reverse everything now in chapter 4. Everything in chapter 1, what did, she, what did she left? She had left her home. She had left her family. She had left her land. She had left her God. Why? Because she tells Naomi, I'm doing this because your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I'm going to go. She saw Yahweh, the God of Israel, for who he was and what he was promising. And she gave up everything back home to come to saving faith in a God who had made promises to her. And now what we find in reversal, she lost her husband, she lost all these other things, her sons, every, all of these different things. Or her husband and her land and her, her, her now sister-in-law, Orpah, that went back to Moab. She had lost all of those things. But in chapter 4, in verse 13, Boaz, her new husband, comes to her. She gets pregnant. Now she has a son. God systematically now in chapter 4, everything that Ruth had said, I'm going to trust you in, I'm going to trust in your providence that you are going to care for me, even though my life is really pretty bad right now. God systematically reverses all of those things and renews the very kindness that he offers to her uh, in the things that he does for her. She has a husband. She has a mother-in-law. She has a land. She has a people. She has a son. Now, don't misunderstand me, friends. The kindness of God is not seen in the things that we have in our life. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what this is saying. For this very reason, God had already determined his kindness to Ruth long before chapter 4. He had poured out his kindness to Ruth all the way back in chapter 1. When he, by the work of the Spirit, before the Spirit began to indwell on Pentecost Sunday had enabled her to see what God was promising. Yahweh, the one true and the living God. For her to have gone back to Moab like Orpah did would be to go back to foreign gods which would be no God at all. There is only one name under heaven by which mankind can be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. And she already had an understanding of that. Looking forward to him, for him to come because of the kindness of God. Because God had opened her eyes to see the beauty of Yahweh himself. So I ask you today, friends, are you content with that? Do you see that everything that you have in life is a gift from God himself? Everything that you have is a gift that God has given. Do you see that, that you don't own anything, but that God owns it all? Are you content with the things that you have or are you constantly trying to get more and more and more? And might I just simply ask you this. Does Jesus satisfy every longing need in your life? Are you content in Jesus? Or are you trying to fill your life with things? The Lord has been kind to you if he has brought you into the kingdom, if he has given you the ability to see your sin for what it is and see your Savior for who he is, then God has been kind to you. He has lavished his grace and mercy upon you. He has satisfied everything. They cannot take away your resurrection. 
Anything that you have in this life you will not take with you, but everything that you have in glory that awaits us is ours because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. How much more kind could he be than that? The last person then that we find in our passage, in the reversal from chapter 1 to chapter 4, the last person we come to is Naomi in verse 14 through 17. The women say, praise be to you, Naomi. In chapter 1, what was her picture? She was empty. Remember? Remember what she said? I came full, but I'm going back empty. And remember what we said even last week? When Boaz said to Ruth, you shouldn't be here on the threshing floor, go back home, don't tell anyone. Oh, oh wait a minute, don't go without, without something in your hands. And he gives her the six measures of barley, the hundred pound pack that she carries on her back. Because he says, don't go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. Don't go back empty handed to your empty mother-in-law, who really isn't empty. But now, now look how full she is. Now we find Naomi, verse 16. She took the child... She laid him in her lap, and she cared for him. She got a son-in-law. She got a daughter-in-law. She got a grandson. All provided for her by whom? The kinsman redeemer. Boaz. But now one more reversal awaits us at the end of this book. And that is the reversal that the author while giving us historical true people in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, is saying, I'm pointing to a bigger, a greater kinsman redeemer. Look at the genealogical account that we have at the very end. We, we close with Ruth, Grandma Ruth, Granny Ruth, or Granny Naomi, sitting there rocking on the, on the porch and got the, little, got the little grandson in her lap. And we think, okay, everything's, everything's good. It all came because Boaz was the faithful kinsman redeemer. But then we see in verse 18 through 22, and this is the family line of Perez. And then we go all through this person to this person to this person, all the way to get from the son that's born, Obed, who has a son later, Jesse, who has a son later, David, who eventually has a son later, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Through your line, David, the king will come. Through your line, David, one of your descendants will always be on the throne. And we get to Matthew and to Luke, and we read the genealogical accounts that point back to Jesus Christ being from the house and the line of David. There is a greater, a greater kinsman redeemer. And that's what chapter 4 ends. Now with this reversal, all of these things worked out because of the obedience of Boaz, the kindness of God to Ruth, and then also the fullness. She wasn't empty anymore, but Naomi was now full because of all of the events that God had done. But he's now saying, but there is a greater kinsman redeemer. I'm taking the focus off of this one right here, right now, to point to one who is even greater, who is still to come, all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. One is coming to crush the head of Satan. And he comes in the fullness of the, the greater son of David, who is Jesus the Christ, the greater kinsman redeemer. So friends, if you're here today, and you are in Christ, in Christ alone, no other name but Jesus, then he is your kinsman redeemer, who is good to you, who has filled you 
who is giving you blessing upon blessing upon blessing. What a gospel. Man, what a gospel. What a savior. What a plan. What a providential plan. Who would have ever dreamed this up except for a divine God who loves his people the way he does? Two weeks ago yesterday, Melissa, my oldest daughter, got married right here in this sanctuary. And I had the great privilege of officiating uh, over that ceremony. And I, in my homily that night, I spoke this, uh, of this. Because it's, it's, it's everything that Ruth chapter 4 is talking about. For 25 years I've been doing weddings. And I've been standing here. And I've been looking back there. Maybe not in this specific place. In other sanctuaries and so forth. But I've always stood at the front... And I have seen my perspective from the front to the back when the doors open and there's the bride and all her beauty and all her glory. She has her makeup done perfectly, her hair done perfectly. She's covered that zit that she didn't want anyone to see. She's got the beautiful dress on and I'm standing here along with the groom and I am beholding the beauty of the bride which Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a husband and wife, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. So I always say in, in a wedding service, I'm standing here and I'm looking back there. My perspective is, here comes the bride of Christ. Here comes the church, gloriously adorned without spot or wrinkle, coming forward. But two weeks ago, my life was reversed. It was rocked upside down because I was not standing up here. I was standing back there with my daughter. And the doors opened up and my perspective was completely reversed, completely different because now I was the bride of Christ coming in and the groom all in all of his adoration in his fancy clothes and his well-cut and, and groomed hair. The Savior was standing, my kinsman redeemer. If this picture is true from Ephesians 5, which it is, the bride of Christ coming, but the bride of Christ comes because the groom is already here. And the groom has his arms stretched open like this, saying, come Come in all your glory because I have already blessed you. I've already been kind to you. I have already filled you. Come and let's wed ourselves together for all eternity. I will renew you and I will sustain you. My world was rocked. But what a beautiful picture, friends, of this book right here. What the author of Ruth is saying to you today that your kinsman redeemer, Jesus the Christ, is standing before you like this, arms open wide, and he is ready. He's ready to bless you. He's ready to show his kindness to you. He is ready to fill you with his grace and mercy because our God is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the goodness of uh, the Savior who is purchased a place for us in heaven by dying on the cross that, that we might be forgiven of our sins and we might, we might come fully adorned without spot or wrinkle into, the, into the, the sanctuary where our groom awaits us. And now, Father, we might receive that full affection, the goodness of a Savior who loved us that much. Father, I, I pray that we would live that out every day. We, we quote our confession 
that man's chief end is to glorify God, and we want to stop there, but we should not to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We enjoy you, Lord, because you are good to us, always good to us. So bless us today, Lord, and seal that to us now as we have finished this wonderful book. Thank you for putting it in your closed canon that we can fix our eyes on the goodness, the way you reverse things when we think there is no way you step in yet again and say, nothing is impossible with me. So seal that to us today, Lord, and let us live out, bear witness to the goodness of our God in the very lives that we live. We pray it in Jesus' name.